You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 97. So despite everything not going to plan, I actually really love my birth story. I feel like I took as much control of it as I could. <laughs> I know there are a lot of things in life that are uncontrollable. I felt like I owned the process a little bit, right? A lot of it I had no control over, it, but everything worked out in the end. And welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. If you enjoyed this show, we'd be incredibly grateful if you'd share it with a friend. You can follow and share our posts on social media at Birth Matters NYC or simply tell them to search for Birth Matters wherever they listen to podcasts. Well, hello again. It's been a hot minute since we've aired a new story, hasn't it? So I wanted to just thank you for your patience. The longer I live, the more I'm reminded that we are not robots. We are people with far more priorities in our lives than just work. We, including myself, must give ourselves space to flex and flow with life's twists and turns. Our family had some tough stuff going on over the past few months, so I just needed to give myself a little bit of grace to slow down for a time, and I hope you will do that too in your own life. But I promise we are working behind the scenes on lots more stories that have already been recorded that we cannot wait to share with you. And soon we'll be celebrating our 100th episode. Very exciting. Here's a quick shout out to podcast listener Tara, who wrote in at 24 Weeks Pregnant to say, I am totally in love with your podcast. At the rate I'm going, I'll be done with all the episodes by the time I'm 30 weeks pregnant. Thank you so much for sharing that podcast love, Tara, and we're wishing you an unforgettably beautiful and transformative birth. If you listen to the podcast and want to share your review, email us at podcast at birthmattersnyc.com or message us on social at birthmattersnyc. Now for a synopsis of the birth story you'll hear today. Callie's hopes were high for an unmedicated birth. She gets thrown a curveball when her membranes rupture as the first sign of labor. Knowing that an important strategy for a healthy birth is to labor at home for as long as possible, she doesn't rush to the hospital. When she does go many hours later, she bravely signs an AMA, or Against Medical Advice, form in order to go back home after learning she's barely dilated or effaced and baby is still high. When she later goes to the hospital and agrees to be induced, she's ultimately very happy to have a vaginal birth with shorter-than-average length of induction, epidural for just a couple of hours, and an efficient pushing stage. She also shares some about her experiences with clinical anxiety and strategies to manage it, challenges with breastfeeding, and experiencing tendinitis due to repetitive stress in holding baby. Before we jump in and hear from Callie, a couple of quick updates. Our next evidence-based birth Savvy Birth 101 workshop is on Wednesday, March 15th at 7 p.m. on Zoom. 
The Savvy Birth 101 one-hour class was developed by Evidence-Based Birth to give you the inside scoop on how to form the ultimate birth team so that when the time comes to bring your baby into the world, you can find yourself at the center of respectful, evidence-based care. It's an excellent class to take earlier in pregnancy and before you take a more comprehensive childbirth class and only takes about an hour of your time. To register, visit birthmattersnyc.com, and there's a link up at the top of the page on the banner. This is just the second time for us to run this workshop, and I really think it will be a great way to help expectant parents think very strategically about their birth team and birth location choices earlier in pregnancy, when it's easier to make changes as needed. Too many expectant parents don't take birth class until their third trimester, and once they start to learn more in class often realize they haven't hired the best care provider for them. Because it's harder to find providers willing to take a late transfer in the third trimester, plus it can also be really stressful to tackle so late. We birth professionals are always trying to brainstorm ways on how to help folks think through their choice of birth setting and care providers strategically earlier. This workshop or our pregnancy support group could make a big difference in this way. I'll also mention that if you take the workshop and then later decide to register for class with me, you'll get a discount on class to cover the cost of the workshop. Also, just a reminder that East River Doula Collective has lots of other supportive offerings like a virtual pregnancy support group, a virtual postpartum support group, one-off classes on induction, lactation, baby wearing, also have sleep consults, custom breast milk jewelry, postpartum meals, holistic toiletries for parent and baby, and the list goes on and on. Our next pregnancy support group called Becoming is most ideal to join in second trimester and starts March 9th. So if you're listening after March 9th, our support groups run in six-week cycles, as do our postpartum support groups. Visit our collective's website, which is eastriverdoulas.nyc, and click on services to learn more. Now let's hear from Callie. My name is Callie. I am from Long Island, born and raised in New York City, but I moved out to Long Island during the pandemic. It gave birth about three and a half months ago. I am a social worker, so I work in the mental health field, but I'm currently on maternity leave. I will be returning to work next month, so a lot to prepare to think about and think about it for a while. But I was grateful enough to have four months off to be with my baby, so it was great. I'm so glad you got that, at least that. That's like the minimum we should get. (laughs) Yeah, I wish I had more. But (laughs) so do you feel at all like you're kind of coming out of the clouds a tiny bit at this point on the other side of the fourth trimester or not? A little bit since he's sleeping more. So I'm getting more sleep. But there's still so many different milestones that he's hitting. And every day is it's so different. Like all of a sudden he's grabbing things now. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, like I'm finding lint in like his fingers. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) that's something no one tells you about. Like you need to clean between their fingers like every couple hours just to make sure he's not eating lint because <laughs> he'll grab yeah. things and like put them in his mouth all the time um, yeah yeah that's something I didn't I mean didn't think about too hard but now I'm like <laughs> oh great <laughs> so so there's always something new right um, they keep us on our toes for exactly, sure exactly mm-hmm. so I'm like looking forward to what the next new fun discovery is when he starts like moving around mm-hmm. yeah Nice. Great. Well, why don't we start off with just sharing anything you would like to note about your pregnancy? Were there any issues, challenges, joys? What were the different ways you prepared for 
this journey into parenthood? Yeah, absolutely. We got pregnant right away after we got married. So, but I'm one of those people who read every single book and downloaded all those apps. So I was like tracking week by week, like what was happening. But relatively, my pregnancy went by pretty uneventfully, I would say. I didn't even have too much nausea in my first trimester. There were a couple of sonograms where they found a little abnormality with an enlarged kidney on the baby, which caused me a lot of anxiety. I do have a history of anxiety, so it was not you know, fun to have to have so many repeat sonograms. We ended up having to wait till the baby was born anyway to figure out what was going on with his kidneys and everything turned out fine. So it was a lot of unnecessary anxiety and sonograms in the beginning because they're saying that back in the day, a lot of people were born with enlarged kidneys and nobody really noticed and people just lived life with an enlarged kidney that eventually resolved itself. But yeah, but other than that, my pregnancy was pretty, pretty good. I really enjoyed being pregnant. I worked out almost every day. I did a lot of yoga prenatal sort of workout classes, a very light strength training. I was reading everything. I was preparing a lot for labor because I really wanted an unmedicated, natural sort of labor. I hired a doula. I looked into every single breathing exercise, every single relaxation exercise. I mean, my husband practiced them all with me. And one thing I was like hoping that wouldn't happen would be like, don't let my water break because then I would have to get induced and then I would have to. And then that's exactly what happened. So you can plan and plan and plan and plan. And sometimes things don't go according to plan, but I think it all worked out well at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Well, unless there's anything else you want to share about pregnancy, feel free to jump into your birth story, how things started. You kind of already alluded to it a yeah. little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. About two weeks before I was due, so I was 37 weeks and like a handful of days, 37 weeks and six days, I think. I was walking, I took a walk with my husband and we were talking to our neighbors and we were joking like, oh, when's the baby going to come? Oh, any day now or it could be next month. And that morning at 4 a.m., I woke up and my water broke. I thought my water broke because I wasn't sure. It wasn't like a big gush of water. I was just, my, my underwear was wet. And I was like, okay, did I pee myself? And I woke up. <laughs> Common question. <laughs> I was like, did I pee myself? It can't be that wet. And I woke up and I went to the bathroom. I, I peed and then I went back to sleep. And then I woke up again and was like wet. I'm like, I think my water broke. And like at this point, I'm like, really not sure. I went back to the bathroom. I put a pad on and I tried to go back to sleep because again, it was just, it was like a couple of droplets. It was so light that I wasn't sure. I woke up at like 30 minutes later. It's like 4.40 AM at this point. And I'm like, I think my water broke. And I like poked my husband and I was like, I think my water broke. And he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I'm going to wait it out. And this is, this goes back to birth class, Lisa, when we were learning about what do you do when your water breaks? And I remember you saying, reading about waiting it out. I had asked my OBGYN what to do if my water breaks. And she said to go to the hospital right away. I remember reading in in birth class, talking to you about not going there right away and waiting for labor to start naturally. And I really didn't want to get unnecessary interventions. And this was a huge thing for me. And I think I alluded to this, but I really 
really did not want unnecessary interventions. I really didn't want that cascade of all these different interventions that led to eventually a C-section. Like my one thing was I really did not want a C-section. I really didn't want that. So I just stalled. I went back to sleep. It was really hard to go back to sleep because my mind was racing. I was very anxious. So I I think I got maybe another hour of sleep. Woke up at 7am, tossed and turned, woke up at 7am and I'm had to put on those disposable underwears. I was ready. I was very ready. I had it all ready. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I had, uh, yeah, I had disposable underwears. I put it on and I just went about like brush my teeth, ate breakfast and I'm stalling. I'm really trying to stop because I remember you said that you had someone who went to the hospital and said that her water broke at two, but she didn't mention it was 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. And it was like a full 12 hours before or something like that. That's episode and five of the podcast. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> so because at this point, I had no contractions. I had, there was nothing. I, and I knew that if I went to the hospital, they were going to want to do an induction. So I'm stalling. And finally, I think it's 11 a.m. And I already ate all my breakfast and I did everything. And then I called my we do I am or the on because that actually happened to be Memorial Day that day that my water broke so no one was working that day so it was the on-call OBGYN and they're like okay well come to the hospital they're like well you can you know know, pack your stuff take a shower eat something and then come to the hospital so I'm stalling again and I'm stalling I'm stalling and I don't think I decided to go to the hospital until five at the same time I was calling my doula and I was like what do I do what should we do and she was in agreement with me and she was okay with me stalling a little bit we both my doula and I and my husband we all in the hospital that evening around 6 p.m I would say I'm in triage by 6 p.m and they triage me I'm only about half a centimeter dilated and I think negative two station and they're like all right our recommendation is induction and again I at this point, I still don't have any contractions. Nothing's happening. I'm just trickling water at this point. No huge gush. I'm barely dilated. The baby's really high up in the pelvis. Like I know all of this from birth class. So I was like, okay, so if we do an induction, how long is it going to take? And they're like, it might take like a whole day, like 24 hours. And I was like, well, can I go home? and do that and wait for it out. And at this point, it was the nurse talking to me. It was the physician's assistant. And I'm like, asking a lot of questions because I really am trying to either stall induction or just try to go home and wait it out. They're saying, we don't recommend you waiting it out. We want to do induction. And I said, what would induction entail? And they, cervical ripening. They talked about a Foley balloon and all of that. And I was like, I really do not want to do that. At this point, they called in the OBGYN to talk to me and answer all my questions. And we can't have you sitting around the hospital and not do an induction. And I was like, well, what happens if I want to go home and wait it out? She said, we do not recommend it, but you can do whatever you want. It's a free country. And I said, I want to go home. And then they were like, okay, so you just have to sign an AMA that you're signing yourself out against medical advice, which sounded very scary to me at that point, right? I guess I have this history of anxiety. I'm constantly worried about the safety of the baby, safety of me, right? They're telling me all these things. There's a risk of infection. There's a risk of you're going to have to get induced anyway. And contractions are going to start by itself. Meanwhile, in triage I'm just with my husband because they didn't let my doula 
come in. She's outside. I'm texting her frantically. And I'm saying, like, what do I do? They're telling me like all of these risks, but I really don't want to get induced. And she said something that made me think, she's like, throughout history, women have had their water broken spontaneously. And there was no induction medication back in the day. You know, what happened back in the day? Like, they waited it out. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, they waited it out. And and it should be okay. At the same time, I'm also frantically like Googling articles. There's a lot of actually research and articles out there. And there is some information about how it's safe to wait 24 hours. And there was another article that said it was actually safe to wait 48 hours. So I was like, okay, not all of these people can be wrong. So I think it was like 7pm at this point in the evening. And I was like, I'm leaving. I want to go home. Like, at least I'll feel more comfortable at home. I'll feel a little bit more in control. But it was a very agonizing decision. And I wouldn't say that the hospital was fear mongering, because I think they were just doing their due diligence. It was just like, there is a very high risk of infection. If you do sign yourself, higher at the hospital, though, higher risk of infection in a hospital. Yeah, I just and, that's so important to point out and to realize. Yeah, and they'll say things like, "Okay, you go home," because I'm like signing out, and they're giving me my clothes back, and they're unplugging things from me because I had all these things on me, monitoring like my blood pressure and stuff. And like, all right, just check. What do they say? Like, oh, you see any discharge that's like black or green? Come back right away. Make sure if you have a fever, you take your temperature. Come back right away. Like, it was like a lot of questions. I know they're trying to keep me safe, but I'm also like freaking out at this point mm. because, of course, it's a very hard decision. I don't think there's a lot of people who show up at the hospital after their water broke and then go home. It's really uncommon. And that's why I asked you to come share, <laughs> because especially having the guts, Kelly, to sign an AMA, which for anyone who's not familiar with what that is, that's a piece of paper that is saying, I am doing this thing against medical advice. It's trying to release them from liability should a complication arise. And that's hard in our doctor knows best society to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to sign this thing that is explicitly saying I am going counter to what the doctor is telling me I should do. But I applaud you for that. Like if that is what you wanted to do and you felt was best and safest for you and your baby. But I also acknowledge, like you're saying, it can be anxiety producing because you're like, am I doing the right thing? I don't know. It was a really hard decision. But just knowing at that point, like I wasn't feeling any contractions. I was barely dilated. I knew I was probably going to be there for 24 hours or something. If I'm going to be there doing nothing, I'd rather be at home, comfortable, eating my own food, sleeping in my own bed, even though I barely got any sleep that night. It just felt a little more in control of the situation. And I, if you knew anything about me, I'm always somebody who followed the rules. Doctors knows best, whatever the doctor says I do. So this is like the first time in my life I've ever gone against the doctor's orders. And I'm like, oh my God, am I doing the right thing? So I went home. I remember eating Chipotle that night. And I'm like thinking, oh my God, did I write, make the right decision? And I'm like feeling, making sure my baby's still kicking because I'm like so worried and anxious at this point but I did everything even before I went to the hospital that morning I was like rolling on the birth ball I was like on my hands and knees I was doing all of those exercises I was trying to induce labor I was trying to get him in the right position and I remember just meditating that night that morning just taking some deep breaths just making sure everything's okay barely slept that night still no contractions. Like I think I had some cramping or maybe light contractions that night, but nothing terrible. 
So I woke up that morning. I'm like, all right, I guess I have to go back to the hospital. It's been like 24 hours at this point, a little more than 24 hours, actually. My water broke at 4 a.m. It's 7 a.m. the next morning. No contractions. I'm still trickling water at this point. I went through so many disposable underwears. And I'm like, wow, I'm surprised there's so much water in there. But somebody told me that you continually replenish your Mm -hmm. amniotic fluid. Right, as you're hydrating. Mm -hmm. I'm just drinking like gallons of water. And I texted my doula and I told her I'm going to go to the hospital. I stalled a long time. And I don't think I got to the hospital until 10 a.m. that morning. And at this point still on contractions, they did the cervical exam. And I'm very aware that like when your water breaks, I don't want too many cervical exams. So I'm very aware they did a second one. And I am still same thing, nothing changed half a centimeter dilated, negative two station, nothing changed. And so at this point, they're like, well, same recommendation, we want to start induction. And this I had a different physician's assistant this time. And I really I want to say she was just very rude or she was just like, well, are you going to get a minute now? It was just almost like she had very little patience for me. And I'm like, well, I came back. I'm going to follow through. I'm going to do the induction because it's been, I think at this point, like 28 hours, 29 hours. So we started the induction process. It actually took a while to get a room and I had to just take a medicine that would help me with my cervical dilation, cervical ripening medicine, as they call it. Uh, it was called Cytotec and it tasted like water. And nothing happened for very many hours, actually. So they administered um, it orally for you? Yep, they administered Great. orally. I really good. didn't want that fully ballooned. I didn't want anything going up there, especially since my water broke. So the good thing is it was just a oral medication to help my cervix dilate. So I think I started at 2 p.m. that day. So this is the next day. And then no contractions for a while. Like at this point, I'm like, what is going on with this baby? Does he want to come out? <laughs> well, yeah, the side attack most of the time is not going to create powerful contractions or effective contractions anyway. Some people feel them, but most of the time we're usually going to need the Pitocin. So it's kind of almost like pre-labor. It's just really mostly about ripening that cervix. Yeah. And I really didn't want to get Pitocin. I just remember I wanted labor to start as naturally as possible. And I wasn't against Cytotec, but I just really didn't want Pitocin until it was absolutely necessary. At this point, I think this is in the evening, and I'm starting to feel a couple of contractions. And every two hours, I have to take a dose of Cytotec. And each time the dose increases, I think they're supposed to be in all like 10 doses. I can't remember how many doses, but I was only maybe four or five doses in and my contractions started getting so bad. It was so painful. Again, I'm trying to do it without epidural. I'm trying to do everything as naturally as possible. But because of the induction, I'm wondering if the contractions hurt more because of the cytotech. I don't know. This is my first kid. So I don't know. And it just it hurt so much. And it just went from zero to 100. I can't explain it. Like one minute, I'm like brushing my teeth and I'm getting ready for bed with my husband. And the next minute, the contractions were just came out of nowhere. They were happening so fast, so strong. And I was like, I want the epidural. And then it was really backed up that day. So it actually took two hours to get an epidural because there are a lot of other people giving breath, apparently. And they're like, you have to sit still for this epidural. And it was terrible. And let me tell you what got me through, Lisa. It was this comb trick um, that I think I saw on Instagram or something where you're holding a comb and it's supposed Uh to like hit some pressure points. And that comb got me through two or three hours of pain and hung my husband was doing those hip squeezes that you had taught us. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was so helpful, but because the contractions were happening so close, or at least in my mind, they were so close. And he got maybe like a 
two, three minute, four minute rest. And then it came up again. And poor Hong, he was like exhausted. I can tell. My doula wasn't here because I thought the induction process was going to take a long time. So once we started induction, my doula had arrived with me at the hospital that morning because they told me and her that the induction process might take a long time. I sent her home. And so she wasn't there and she, she couldn't really help out with that part. So thank God my husband learned some tricks, Lisa, because... <laughs> It was the comb and him doing the hip squeeze for those three hours that I was able to get through it while waiting for the epidural. And then during the epidural, they're like, you need to sit still. And I'm, you know, and Hung couldn't be in there. So I was just squeezing that comb for dear life. I just, <laughs> <laughs> the indentations. Exactly. But it really helped. I don't know what it was, but. It's supposed to boost endorphin production. Okay. I thought it was some mm-hmm. acupressure yeah, point yeah. thing it as is, well. It is. Yep. I got the epidural and then they did a cervical check. So this is only my third cervical check since my water broke. And I was seven centimeters dilated, like 90% of face. And then they rushed me to the delivery room. And my doula arrived at that time. She was in labor and delivery with me. I started feeling pressure immediately. So I got the epidural at 4 a.m. I got checked at 4.45 and I was fully dilated. And around 5 a.m. I started pushing. So he came out pretty fast. I think I pushed only for 20 minutes and he came out. So I never finished induction medication. I was only halfway through the induction medication. And I would like to think that me going home, laboring at home, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. Me going home, sort of giving it more time helped start the process so that I didn't have to take the entire induction protocol and didn't have to wait the full 24 hours. He came out less than 12 hours after I started induction medication. So that's great. Yeah, Yeah. that's on the shorter end of the range that I can take. So I don't doubt that at all. And so you're saying you never had any Pitocin? I never had any Pitocin. I never finished a Cytotec. And even though I got the epidural, despite wanting to go as natural as possible, I only had the epidural for two hours before he was out. So they unplugged me right away. I was like, oh, okay. So I, I felt like I did that mostly unmedicated, I would say, because the, the, yeah. the pain lasted so much longer than the actual relief. So in total... It was 50 hours after my water broke that my baby came out. And my first thing I was worried about was like any signs of infection, infection in the baby and me and everything was fine. And they were checking me out throughout my stay there and everything was fine. So I'm lucky, I guess. I'm sure infection is something that happens, which is why they tell you and make sure that you're aware of it. But again, I feel like going home and just being in my own space and just Again, I'm someone who gets so anxious and stressed out. If I was in the hospital, it would have been not a great experience for me. It would have been very stressful. I would have been very anxious. And even though I was anxious at home, I was at home. I was in my own space. And I was able to put more time between actually taking the induction medication and him coming out because eventually I didn't have to finish the induction medication. I didn't have to get Pitocin. Like I managed to dilate and I was surprised he came out so fast and pushed him out on his own within 20 minutes. So despite everything not going to plan, I actually really loved my birth story. I feel like I took as much control of it as I could. (laughs) I know there are a lot of things in life that are uncontrollable. I felt I owned the process a little bit, right? A lot of it I had no control over. I had no control over the fact that my water broke, had no control over the fact that I did have to get induced. But, you know... 
everything worked out in the end. I was wondering when you mentioned your anxiety several times, you did bring up meditation. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there were other things that you do or did specifically in your labor and or pregnancy to manage anxiety. Yeah. So meditation is a big part. And I have always meditated even before I got pregnant, breathing exercises, many different types of breathing exercises. And a big thing that I did in my doula and I came up with was we did birth affirmation cards. So during the labor, she had actually printed them out for me and I had them spread out on the table around me. And I'm just like taking deep breaths, trying to breathe through contractions and just reading them or having my husband read them because at that point I couldn't read, I couldn't focus. And I would like to say that it helped. I also feel like if I wasn't someone who practiced meditation more regularly, I would have been even more anxious or even more stressed out. I've practiced yoga for 20 years. I'm not that old, but I've practiced yoga since high school. And the yoga part of the breathing really helped as well. And it helped that I was practicing it during my pregnancy before labor. I don't know how that affected me mentally. There's part of me that feel like if I was more of a meditator and more like Zen, I wouldn't need the epidural. A little part of me felt like, oh gosh, maybe if I had breathed through another two hours, I didn't know he was going to come out in just two hours. Maybe I could have done it fully unmedicated. That plays such mind games with us, doesn't it? The whole not knowing how long you have to do it. But induction is a hard way to go. It really is. It's not your body's natural rhythms and strength. And it's a lot harder to tolerate. So I would say go easy on yourself. Yeah. So like part of me afterwards, I'm like, was it more painful because of the induction medication? Or is this just what it's supposed to feel like? Because I convinced myself that it was harder (laughs) because of the induction medication. But I'm going to give myself a little bit of grace. I love the birth affirmations. I think that's super helpful. The breathing exercises. Oh, you know what also helped? My doula was just telling, because I was like screaming or a very high pitch and she told me to go lower. I think at one point it was like very melodic, like a low moan. That really helped because I was like, was I really loud? Because I... Afterwards, I asked my husband, is that really loud? Did you hear me outside? He's like, no, because he had to go outside. He couldn't be in the room when I was doing the epidural. But I was, I wouldn't say screaming, but I was like really moaning because I had to stay still during an epidural. I was embarrassed about being loud and overheard. He's no, nobody heard you. But the low pitch sounds really, really helped. So, so it's almost like that yoga ohm, right? When you're oming, that came naturally to me. So I'm just like oming. And it did help. And the surprising thing about an epidural was like, oh my God, I still feel feel a lot of things. (laughs) I thought it was going to completely erase all pain, but everybody takes it differently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it's like, I still feel a lot of things. And at that point, they're like, do you feel like you have a lot of pressure? I think you're ready to push us. Yeah. Um, The epidural doesn't remove the pressure. Yeah. I would like to say I, I had a mostly unmedicated birth, but I think, yeah, I have nothing against epidurals. It was amazing. (laughs) Yeah, great. I'm glad you did the best with what you had. And Mm -hmm. even if that wasn't the plan, it's good you were flexible and adaptable, but also advocated for yourself for what you wanted to go home. (laughs) And I really think honestly, going home helped the labor process along, even if I wasn't fully Mm -hmm. in contractions. I just can't imagine spending 24 hours or something just sitting there waiting for something to happen and just feeling so anxious. And I am just someone who would go crazy. I would just 
drive myself up the wall if I had to. I want to ask one clarifying question. Mm -hmm. You mentioned moving to the delivery room. I know the hospital where you gave birth, unlike most hospitals, they have an induction space. Yeah. Is that what you were talking about? Were you in that induction space and then they moved you when you were about to be pushing? Yeah, I was in a room that is, I think, specifically for inductions. So I was in there for a really long time, I think. And then when I got my epidural, when they checked me and they saw that I was seven centimeters dilated, then they moved me to labor and delivery room. And I was only in that other room for, I don't even remember what that room looked like because I was only in there for two hours, I think. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that hospital does that. Most hospitals, at least in the New York area, whether you're induced or not, you're in your labor and delivery private room for the whole thing. So you're not like transferring anywhere. Once you get through triage and you get admitted, you're just there for the whole thing. Yeah. And it was a weird day too, because I remember I had to wait a really long time to even have an induction room open for me. I was in triage for five hours before they even found a room for me for induction. That's why induction took a while, which Mm -hmm. again, I think it helped because it stalled me again some more, right? Like it was another five hours before I actually officially started the induction medication. At one point, it was so bad, the pain that she came with the next dose of Cytotec. And I mean, I asked her, do I have to take this? (laughs) Like my contractions are really bad. And that's when we talk through, we need to do a cervical check. Let's make sure you're doing okay. So yeah. it was Hong able to be with you in triage for that five hours? Yes. Yeah. Okay, My good. husband was with good. me the entire time. So it was nice. It was good. And they let me eat too before I got sort of officially admitted. So I was in triage eating chicken noodle soup, which was uh-huh, good. good. Also wanted to mention that. So throughout the induction process, I wasn't allowed to eat. So I was like on a liquid diet. So they served jellos and soups and broths and stuff. And I remember again, something I learned from your classroom. And then I remember reading on evidence evidence-based birth that there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to eat. And I was sneaking like crackers. I was good. Good for you. I was like, I need energy because I'm I'm like, it's been 12 hours since I ate anything. I was eating crackers. I was eating like a granola bar. I was (laughs) eating chicken and rice. And I just ate a couple of pieces of chicken because I'm like, I need some protein. Protein. Yes. And at this point I had my appetite. I was really hungry. So I was sneaking food when the nurse wasn't. And I feel like that gave me a little more energy because I honestly... By the point I gave birth, I hadn't eaten anything in 18 hours, just jello. And I'm like, how do they expect me to have energy to give birth? I mean, right. to push if I don't eat anything. So I'm like, I'm, like, I'm glad I ate whatever little things I was able to eat. Good. Like, there's no way jello would have given me energy. For no. That. So that was no. something I wanted to mention. So I really went against a lot of rules. But you did what is evidence-based <laughs> and for a healthy birth. So yay. <laughs> yeah. I felt I was educated or informed enough to know that I would never make decisions knowingly that would adversely harm me or my baby. Right. So I, I know the whole rule against eating is just, you know, a little outdated. So that's something I wanted to go against. And the whole rule about getting induced right away was also really interesting to me because my OBGYN told me that back in the day, she used to send people home and she's not older. And She's like maybe in her 40s or 50s. So she said back in her career, back in the day, if somebody's water broke, they would send them home. And she said, but nowadays we start induction right away. And I was like, well, why? Like, you know, and it was the whole like risk of infection thing. Uh, And I'm like, so how often does that actually happen? You know? 
And it's fascinating to me. (laughs) Are you going to say something, Lisa? You know me, I'm about to get on a pedestal because (laughs) if the risk of infection is lower being in a hospital, then why earlier in COVID, why were they sending people home a full day earlier to get them the heck out of the hospital to reduce the risk of infection? (laughs) I know, exactly. It's so ironic and backwards. Exactly. So again, I felt very comfortable with that decision of going home. It was hard. I'm not going to say that it was an easy decision. It was definitely one of the hardest decisions because I remember telling my husband, like, are we putting our baby's life in danger? I would never forgive myself if, God forbid, anything happened. But thank God, because I was talking to my coworker, and this is probably a side note, Lisa. My coworker took your birth class too, and her water broke, and she waited 24 hours. And she did have to get induced and she actually did get an infection. So just a side note, like I remember hearing her story and I was like, oh, geez, that's, I don't want that to happen. But I don't know. I feel like the yoga helped. (laughs) I feel like all the yoga, all the like hands and knees, I was doing all of that while waiting to go to the hospital. And I was just trying so hard to induce contractions and start things up. I felt like it helped. I felt like my state of mind helped. Who knows? These things just, it's different for everybody. With your friend and my client, how did everything turn out with regard to the infection? If you don't mind my asking, if um, you're comfortable sharing. I don't remember, but they told her like the, her fever spiked. So when she got to the hospital, she was given Pitocin though. She didn't do cervical ripening. She was given Pitocin. Her fever spiked and she was still not dilated enough. So she ended up getting a C-section. And she went to the same hospital that I did. I didn't ask the details, but I don't know why some people get Pitocin, some people don't, and why some people get this. I think they start with the cervical ripening first, and then they go to Pitocin, but I'm just, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to go to Pitocin, and that everything just kind of started up and then just went really fast. Yeah, and most of the time, if there does end up being an infection, we treat it with antibiotics. It might mean mother-baby separation or parent-baby separation after the birth, just depending on the hospital protocols, but usually it ends up being okay. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's any tragic outcome or anything. Obviously, we'd like to avoid it if we can, but that's really uncommon for that to happen as long as we're abiding by best practices to minimize the risk of infection and all of that. But I'm sorry to hear that that happened for your friend. Yeah, that was one of the things I was like, well, what's the worst thing about an infection? Can't you treat it? Like that was one of my questions. I know it's good to avoid, like you wouldn't want to knowingly go get one, but like it's treatable, <laughs> yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I felt like it was, the, it was just kind of there you're going to risk of infection. Like it was like the worst thing that could ever happen, which again, I felt like there was a lot of fear mongering. I get it. There's a liability thing with hospitals. I get Absolutely. why they're doing it, but it doesn't help people with anxiety. I would right. say. Yeah. And we can't even fault our OBs or nurses because there are so many layers of administration hovering over their shoulders. Like mm-hmm. they have a safety officer telling them, right. you got to do a C-section now. And yeah. that's an unfortunate pressure that our OBs and hospital providers have. Well, is there anything else you wanted to share about the birth before you share a bit about, I think you wanted to talk a little bit about postpartum. What did I want to share about the birth? No, I think it was good. I just remember joking with my husband, like he really didn't want to be born on May 30th May 31st. <laughs> really wanted to come two days later on June 1st. It was sunrise too with the sun shining. It's my vagina. Uh-huh. It looks like the dance uh-huh. are the shades up. So my little baby really knew how to, knew how to pick his birthday. So. <laughs> and anything but to note emotionally about meeting him? What you did feel or what so you didn't feel? Surreal. Everything was so surreal. I don't know, maybe because I was just in a daze at that point. But like, I can't remember anything up 
till the minute he was born. Everything just felt fuzzy to me. Like, I'm sure you hear a lot of new mothers do that. But I also remember the nurses around me saying how amazing of a job I did. They're like, wow, your water broke like 50 hours ago. Is this unheard of? <laughs> like, I was just like, <laughs> Well, your fast, very efficient pushing stages is uncommon for a first timer. Yeah. 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 I'm sure they were impressed with that. The fact that he was born at 6.30 a.m. and the nurse shifts start at seven. There's a new nurse on staff. So that nurse who was on staff was like, wow, I didn't think I was going to get one more birth in today. (laughs) So it was really funny. But no, it was the minute they put him on my chest. I was like, all the pain, all the everything, all the anxiety just kind of melted away. Obviously, nowadays, I have a different type of anxiety with (laughs) taking care of a newborn. But yeah, there's nothing like that moment. Great. Well, then you wanted to talk a little bit more about mental health and postpartum, I think, and breastfeeding challenges. Yeah, I think I spent so much time preparing for labor. And it just happened so fast that I never thought about the postpartum period. Or I didn't think about it as much as I did. Nobody tells you how hard breastfeeding is and the challenges of struggling to feed your child, being up in the middle of the night, feeling like you're the only person dealing or struggling with that. Especially when it's like that middle of the night, like two in the morning, like I'm the only person up with a baby right now, which obviously I'm not, but it feels like you are. And the baby, whether they are not sleeping or they're not slatching or anything like that, just, just feel like all of these problems are so unique or personal to myself, which I know they aren't. So I definitely had a struggle with breastfeeding. I felt like I wasn't sure if it was a latching issue or if it was just low supply, but whatever it is, we started supplementing the formula. It wasn't until the baby was six weeks old that I saw a lactation consultant. And I remember learning in birth class, like you're like, get a lactation consultant. I have one on hand. Like I was like, Oh, I don't need that. I don't want to think about that. All I want to think about is how to have unmedicated birth. Um, like I was so focused on labor. And I remember talking to my therapist, I talked to my whole focus was like how to have a safe labor, how to avoid a C-section, worrying about the pain as a first time mother. That was all I was worried about. And I didn't spend as much time preparing for postpartum as I would have liked. Not that there's really nothing to prepare you for it. I think, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you have to just do it. But yeah, breastfeeding was such a challenge. And I think it really, really impacted my mental health because there were times where he was crying, I was crying because I felt like I couldn't feed him. I didn't have enough milk. And I felt like, my boobs are made for one job and I wasn't doing that job. And it was just such a struggle. And I felt every time I had to give him a formula bottle that I failed. And I know a lot of people feel that way. And they tell you like, don't feel like that you failed. Feeding your baby, no matter how you feed your baby is what's important. But there's just, I feel like there's so much guilt around not being able to breastfeed or guilt around choosing formula over breastfeeding. There's a lot of shaming, I think, that goes around that's very subtle, but it's there. So around six weeks, I did hire a lactation consultant and we were able to work together to figure it out. I started taking supplements, started power pumping. I'm still breastfeeding now. I'm still supplementing with formula. So I've made my peace with it, but I've gotten to a point where I feel like my supply is more regular and it's more able to feed my baby. But those first six weeks, it was really rough because I just remember just crying so much because I feel like such a failure that I could not 
do the one thing that I thought was going to come easy. So I always thought breastfeeding was going to be easy. I heard stories about people who struggled. I mean, I know that it wasn't an easy thing, but it was definitely just hard. I remember my nipples were in pain and I developed, they call it a milk blood and and it was painful and I still had to do it because if I didn't do it, it wasn't going to stimulate the supply and his poor baby was like crying because he was hungry and my mom was like just give him a bottle I'm like no he needs to suck on my breast because he needs to stimulate breast milk so we'll let him suck for a little bit and then we'll feed him a bottle of formula but it was just a struggle because everybody around me wanted me to just give him a formula bottle and nothing wrong with formula bottle but I was so determined to breastfeed and so I mean I feel like I succeeded like I'm breastfeeding now he's three and a half months old he is mostly breastfed he has one formula the bottle at night to just kind of hold him through the night everything else is breast milk so I worked with that lactation consultant for a really long time they make house visits which is great the so lifesaver I, yeah yes I was like oh my god I have to go carry this newborn baby to some office and I found <laughs> one who made a house visit and it was great and they have this great scale that will like measure how much milk he's taking in and I've again I was like, oh my God, he's taking in so little. And I was like, how is he being fed? But he was making weight at every doctor's appointment. In the beginning, he was losing so much weight. So that's why I was like feeling like a failure. But once we established my milk supply, he was making weight at every doctor's appointment. So I felt okay. And then remember the lactation consultants, like sometimes mommies just make exactly enough for their baby, like no more, no less. And that made me feel better because I see people like pumping like bags and bags and I see freezer supplies and I felt like so bad. And she was like, no, sometimes people just make exactly enough for what their baby needs. So you might not be one of those people who will have a giant freezer supply. But that's okay, because he's making weight and he's growing. So that that made me feel a bit better. But Sometimes nowadays, I still feel a lot of anxiety around feeding him because uh, it's really hard with breastfeeding because you don't know how much he's getting. I'm not pumping it out and seeing it and feeding him. He's on my boobs, so I don't know how much is actually going into him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a lot harder. And like every time he goes to his doctor's appointments, I'm always like, fingers crossed. I'm like, I hope he's like gaining weight. Because, <laughs> and that anxiety is so much that it's getting harder. It was hard in the beginning. It's getting a little easier. There's still a lot of residual anxiety, I would say. I plan to breastfeed for six months, but my milk supply is actually doing net well now. So I might continue breastfeeding as long as I have supply going but yeah no nobody tells you how hard it is yeah no I feel like people don't talk about it enough just normalizing combo feeding and supplementing a formula I remember I was in the hospital and I was in so much pain my nipples were so raw and I was like no I'm gonna keep doing it keep doing my OBGYN made a visit and she's I supplemented with formula I'm like you can do that I didn't know you could do that absolutely (laughs) yeah I didn't know that I can supplement with a bottle I just want my baby to be okay and I'll work on the other parts so I feel like people need to normalize that a little bit more supplementing formula, or talk about it more I feel like it's always one or the other like breastfeeding or formula and nobody really talks about like there are people who supplement one bottle there's some people who combo the feed there's really. so many options mm-hmm. that I didn't learn about or think about till I got to this point and then also never thought I would spend so much of my time trying to figure out how to feed my baby <laughs> my you know formula fed and my mom's like what's the problem just give him the point I'm like no <laughs> so again I think it was a generational thing a cultural thing and then 
just me being very sort of stubborn and going, no, this is what I really want to do. This is what I really want to try to do. And, and I feel like, yeah, I was able to do it, but it was just so hard in the beginning. Nothing really prepares you for your boobs getting sucked on that frequently. Like, <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, All right. Like, I'm like, I don't think my nipples are able to handle this, but they're made for it. So they're able to adjust. There's an but adjustment like, period. Yeah. yeah, definitely is an adjustment period. Mm-hmm. And just that period of like constant, like, I'm like I just fed you <laughs> that cluster feeding is so relentless hard. And, yeah. and it makes you feel like oh I'm, uh, I'm not making enough milk that's why he needs it another, every hour and all of this stuff is normal but nobody talks about it or at least we don't talk about it enough that mm-hmm. I just felt like such a failure but yeah, those first couple of weeks, they were a doozy, let's just say. And now I'm just like, same thing. I didn't think I would stress out so much about feeding my baby. But now that I'm starting to think about like solids and stuff, I'm like, okay, like right. coming up here than, in less than three months. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you start stressing out about that as well. But at least, you but know, then you're seeing be... what's going into their body. So exactly. at least there's that encouraging aspect less and mystery exactly and there's options right there's yeah. milk and there's solid food right? as opposed yeah. to just milk yeah mm-hmm. if you had to do it all over again would you call a lactation consultant sooner you said you called around six weeks is when you started to work with one yeah I called around six weeks well I did one virtually like at three weeks and I met with her twice but the virtual didn't work for me like it wasn't helpful like mm-hmm. she couldn't see the latch well, she mm-hmm. tried to see the latch and you couldn't weigh the baby. So then I was like, I need to see somebody in person. And I was like worried sure. about how much it costs. And then it turned out my insurance covers it. So I actually Yay. found one through your website, through the mm-hmm. New York, what was it? The New York Milka? Lactation. Maybe Milka, Lactation yeah. Consultant Association. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll put I that on the show notes. There. Yep. Yeah. And there was one in Long Island because I wanted to find someone in Long Island. I wanted to find somebody mm-hmm. who would make home visits and I actually found a great one. So it was amazing. And if I had to do it again, I think I would have called earlier. Or I would have called right away, but I thought I could get it. I thought I could do it all on my sure. own. Oh, I was the um, same way. And I really wish I had called in for the support. Yeah. Cause I was like, well, what can they do that? I don't already know. And I think that's part of like my, like I read everything and I did everything, mm. but it was like a lot of things. And part of it wasn't even just the strategies. It was just like encouragement. Like he's gaining weight. You're doing a good job. And I was like, I am breaking down <laughs> open the floodgates yeah, yeah. Uh, like otherwise you wouldn't be gaining weight I'm like really and it because it just doesn't it doesn't feel like it, it doesn't feel like it because you don't know what's going in and during this time I think six weeks was when he was again going through another cluster feeding thing so I'm like but why is he always hungry <laughs> am I not giving him enough that's because my mom was helping me throughout this period taking care of him and he's like why is he always hungry and my mom kept trying to push for me. Like she really wanted to just make my life easier. And I talked to my therapist about it because look, if it's going to start affecting your mental health, then maybe you shouldn't work so hard on it. And maybe it's just easier to go with formula because then there are a lot of things that people don't tell you that breastfeeding takes up your time. It takes up your sleep. Wrist pain, like wrist pain was a huge thing for me that I actually had to end up seeing a doctor for. There's a lot of side effects I would have said. They don't tell you that kind of really all of it impacts your physical health, your mental health, right? So I remember talking to my therapist, just like, if it's easier to just go to formula and it, it will help you sleep better and have more free time and feel more in control, then maybe we should consider that. And I really considered it. Again, I'm just a very 
determined person. And if I decide I want to do something, I will be really good at it. As you can tell, I was always an A plus student, but it was just one of those things that it's not like you can study for it and get it, get a good grade. There are people who legitimately, you know, have low supply and there are people who legitimately cannot breastfeed. So that's why when I started to work with an occupation consultant, I was like, well, what's the issue? Let's try to figure it out. And if it's not fixable, I will accept it. But if it's something that I can do, I will try my hardest and Look, I'm still not 100% breastfeeding him. I still rely on some formula, but I feel I feel good about how he's fed now. I feel like we've finally gotten to some sort of routine. Back then, it was just like all over the place. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no such thing as a routine really in the beginning weeks. Yeah. But by three months, you can get into a little more of a routine. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, I'm so glad you found what works for you and your family, yourself and your baby. Thank you. So would you mind elaborating a little bit? I know you wanted to talk about the whole wrist wrist pain thing because that hasn't been highlighted on this podcast. Yeah, that's also something no one ever tells you. I think it's called mommy wrist or mommy thumb. It's a tendonitis on the thumb side of your wrist. And it's from various different motions, uh, repetitive acts, right? Holding the baby. So I remember when he was little and I had to hold his head up to my boob or to hold my breast in a certain way so that it would angle towards his mouth. So there's a lot of repetitive movements and strain on my wrist. So in the beginning, I had a lot of pain on my wrist. I remember a brace and then it went away. And then a month or so, I think because my baby's gaining weight and I'm holding him a lot more now, it was just, it was so painful. It was so inflamed that when I went to the doctor, we had to do a cortisone shot just to relieve the inflammation. But apparently this is something that a lot of new mothers get. And my friend had to get a surgery where they released the surrounding sheath around the tendon because it was just getting so inflamed. But I feel like no one ever talks about it because I was just kind of like going through the pain. I think I went three weeks before I went to even Google anything about it because I was like, oh, this is supposed to be normal. I'll just ice it and I'll just I'll get used to it or my wrist will get stronger or something like that. But again, nothing I learned about. I didn't think about it too much and because my baby's still young and I still have to hold him. There's still a chance, you know, that I'll come back. And there's only so many cortisone shots that you can get in your wrist, apparently. And if it doesn't resolve itself, then we'll have to go to surgery. So it's something that I'm super aware of now. It's also another side effect of breastfeeding, right? Because if I was just feeding a bottle, somebody else can do the bottle. I could just go feed him with a bottle instead of holding it's a lot of maneuvering. So now I'm like trying to be very aware of it. But motherhood is hard. So there's a lot of yeah. things that I don't think about. But look, I would do anything for my baby. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I always wish we had more time in birth class to go take a deeper dive into functional movement. I just very briefly bring it up in class. And when we're practicing picking up babies, I often mention, be careful how you're holding your baby because often we do get some wrist issues from the awkward ways that we're repetitively carrying the baby or breastfeeding the baby or changing their diaper or whatever. But we just don't have enough time to really talk about that and really get a more full education. So that's why I give some of the online different exercise programs that do, in many cases, take a deeper dive into getting your body into better alignment after birth and during pregnancy as well. And how do you get out of bed? And how do you get out of a chair? And how are you moving about your day, including the hand and wrist things? And I will, as I'm preparing the show notes for this episode, I'm going to look up to see if I can find a recording of a class that I took that was for expectant parents 
and birth professionals. It was with a hand and wrist surgeon. Mm -hmm. And he talked about this very topic about different strategies to try to help prevent those kinds of issues. So I don't know if there's a public recording posted of it, but I'm going to look that up and I'll link to it in the show notes if I can. Yeah, that would be great. And there's apparently exercises. And my brother's a PT. So he's like, yeah, I should do this. I'm like, well, you should have told me this (laughs) a long time ago. But yeah, there's like exercises you can do or to strengthen it. But yeah, there's a lot of picking up and putting down that, especially now that I'm trying to sleep train, there's a lot of picking up because it's not going to stay down. So I'm like so aware of the way I'm like doing it now. But in the beginning, I know it wasn't. I was in a daze. I know people can't really see what I'm doing right now, but it was such an awkward position. And I remember it would just be numb. And I'm like, oh, that's okay. And I would just shake it out. Holding your breast for breastfeeding is what you're talking about, like sandwich hold. The sandwich hold. And it was just, I remember such an awkward way on my wrist. And I remember feeling like this can't be good. And then lo and behold, I end up with tendonitis. So they're only going to get heavier at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So having some support and strategies could have yeah baby um what is it baby carrying um really baby wearing baby wearing I was yeah. just thinking about that because you're not then having to use your wrists yeah. and your hands once they're yeah, in the that, carrier hands that free. really helps okay. helps me I have a baby who just loves to be held so there was yeah, a lot of like awkward holding him you can see my wrist but the baby carrying thing was really great so I advocate for that as well <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm so glad you brought it up. Great, Callie. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. This has been wonderful. Are there any final tips or insights or words of advice you would have for expectant parents who might be listening? Oh, I just think it's definitely an adventure and I'm still learning as I go. I don't think I would do anything differently because I feel like every single thing has just been very educational for me and informational for me. And it's a great adventure. I would not traded for anything in the world. But yeah, definitely I acknowledge that there are a lot of struggles. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of hardships, but have a good support system. Know who to go to and definitely ask for help. Do not be afraid to ask for help. That is my final insight. <laughs> Those are good ones. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Kelly. It's been great to see you. And I really good appreciate you, you taking the time to share your great story. Thank you for having me. So that was Callie's very brave and courageous story of signing an AMA to go back home because that's what she felt like she wanted to do and that was going to lead to the best outcome. Today, I will elaborate on a few brief things. The trickle as compared to the gush with membrane rupture, also known as water breaking, or I like to call it releasing. The Foley balloon, the comb trick, education around tendonitis, and the Bishop's score. A confusing trickle of amniotic fluid usually means lower risk of infection because the tear in the bag is higher, where it would be harder for anything harmful to reach the tear in the membranes. Because of this, a few, but the minority, of hospital providers would send someone home if they just had a trickle because of this even lower risk. But we see most hospital providers, at least in the New York City area, strongly pressure someone whose bag of waters has ruptured at all, even with a high leak, to get admitted. There are at least a couple of reasons for this. First, hospital providers are trained to manage birth, to medicalize it or pathologize it. This unfortunately often leads to anticipating, seeing, or treating problems that don't actually exist, which can in turn create true problems. 
Evidence has proven time and time again, and American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG, our main authoritative voice over our maternal health care system, has explicitly stated that U.S. hospital providers over-intervene very often to birth families' detriment. Another layer of pressure is the legal department, which is very concerned about a lawsuit. This understandable concern in our very litigious society leads to unnecessary interventions, including checking people into the hospital earlier than is wise for a healthy birth. You might wonder why. This is because a hospital's or provider's best defense in a lawsuit is having done all the things, all the interventions. Compare this model of care to home birth and birthing center midwives who would give someone in labor a lot more time before taking any action, and most of the time without any negative consequences. I'll link to a helpful resource from Evidence-Based Birth in the show notes for this episode on pre-labor rupture of membranes that can help you learn about what Callie was saying about the risk of infection, apart from other medical risk factors, not really starting to escalate significantly until at least 24 hours possibly not until 48 to 72 hours after it ruptures or releases. I just want to highlight that Callie was smart to opt out of the Foley balloon, which is an internal mechanical dilation device often used for induction since her membranes were ruptured. We definitely want to minimize things going into the vagina once the bag has released to reduce risk of infection. I wanted to elaborate a bit on the comb trick that Callie mentioned. According to acupuncturist Deborah Betts, who wrote a great booklet called Acupressure for Labor that I recommend and will link to in the show notes, squeezing a comb with the teeth in the crevice between the palm and the bottom of the fingers helps decrease our perception of pain by triggering the production of endorphins. Also, another point of view that's related is that this comb technique has to do with the gate control theory of pain. This theory is based on the idea that our brains can only pay attention to a limited number of strong sensations in our body, and squeezing the comb is a neurological distraction for the brain so that it pays more attention to the comb sensation than the contractions. I am sorry to report that I was not able to locate the recording with the wrist hand surgeon I had mentioned in the interview because it turns out that that workshop wasn't actually recorded. However, I'm working on scheduling an IG Live with a physical therapist on this topic for a little education around this, and I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes once it happens. Or you can follow us at Birth Matters NYC so you'll hear about it in real time. Finally, I wanted to talk about something called the Bishop's Score. If your care provider is starting to think about or talk about induction with you, they are going to be evaluating mostly the ripeness and readiness of your cervix. So the first four things on the Bishop's score are all having to do with your cervix, how dilated or open it is, how effaced or thinned out it is, how soft or ripe it is, and the position of the cervix. As the cervix prepares for birth, it changes from pointing toward the tailbone or posterior to pointing toward the vagina or anterior. And then the last thing the Bishop's score looks at is the vertical position or station of the passenger, which is clinical speak for the baby. Sounds like we're at Grand Central Station or King's Cross. 
This is going to help your care provider to develop their game plan for an induction to figure out which approaches and what strategy and what medications might they use for an induction. If someone scores higher on the Bishop's score, they're that much closer to spontaneously going into labor, they're going to need fewer medications, it will likely take less time, and has more chance of being a successful induction. Then the lower score, the opposite things are true. The less ripe and ready the cervix is, the higher in the pelvis the baby is, the farther we are from going into labor spontaneously, and the more risk there is that an induction might just not work. The highest score is 15, as each of the five things the bishop's score assesses can get a score of up to three. This bishop's score information is going to be really good information for you to ask to help you decide whether or not you want to agree to the induction or buy more time. And if you agree to an induction, asking your provider to walk you through your bishop's score can help you get a better lay of the land of the specific medications or tools your provider might plan to use for your induction. I'll link to some information from Evidence-Based Birth on the bishop's score in the show notes for this episode over at birthmattersshow.com. After we recorded the interview, Callie shared with me three of her favorite affirmations to share with you in case they're helpful for you too. The first one is, every contraction brings me closer to meeting my baby. Another is, no matter what, I'm going to be okay, my baby is going to be okay. And the third, hi baby. I know you're working so hard to be born, and Mommy is staying strong for you. We're a team, and we're going to meet each other so soon. I wonder if any of these resonates with you, or perhaps you could adapt the wording to best apply to you. Then consider meditating regularly on it this week. Okay, here's a sneak peek of what's up next week. They were kind, warm, great bedside manner. It was around six months. He was breached. She was bundled up. My uterus is very small because of the way it's shaped. And they were like, generally at this point, we would start trying to turn the baby and do the things that they have to do to try to get him ready for birth. But they were like, we don't even want to try that on your body because he's just, he's in there and he's not going anywhere. They were like, if he does magically turn himself, then great. We can do a natural birth. But at this point, it's looking like Starian is going to have to be what it's going to have to be. So that was Crystal, and you'll hear her full story next time. We promise to do our very best to get this one live sooner than today's. If you enjoy these stories but haven't subscribed yet, we'd be so grateful if you'd take a moment to do that. Please know we truly appreciate that you took the time to listen to the Birth Matters podcast. Stay curious, and we'll see you soon for the next episode. Bye.